time for Healthy Talk Radio. By the power vested in me, by the Federal Communications Commission. Coming to you live from the headquarters of the Global Health Network and across the world wide web. <gasps> Computers can do that? It's America's longest running radio program dedicated to your health and wellness. What's taking place here is an alternative approach. Now, the woman who's changing the face of health care each and every day. That's the fact, Jack! Here's Deborah Ray. Good day. Welcome to Healthy Talk Radio. I'm uh, Deborah Ray. Well, it's an amazing story coming out of the morgue in Venezuela. A man declared dead after a highway accident taken to the morgue. They started to do an autopsy, making an incision on his face, and he woke up. (laughs) He has the scar to prove it. Well, it's a fascinating book that is a must-read for each and every healthcare consumer in this country. It's written by a Ph.D. in organic chemistry. A noted uh, scientist as well as a chemist, Dr. Joel Kaufman, joins us today to talk about malignant medical myths, from fluoride in water to an aspirin a day to medicalizing childbirth, all the information that we need to know to make informed health care decisions with Dr. Joel Kaufman as our guide today, right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Now, the news and views about the news you won't hear anywhere else. The Healthy Talk Radio News Digest. We always take a look at the healthcare news and views uh, and try to do it with credible sources that you won't hear anywhere else. So the Wall Street Journal today, very interesting article. Uh, why some expectant moms are worried about tattoos. You know, we now know that uh, a surprising number of uh, the population has body piercings and tattoos, and 57% of those people with tattoos will develop hepatitis C. But what the Wall Street Journal points out this morning is that in 2002, uh, a pair of Canadian anesthesiologists published a report about whether or not doing an epidural, uh, administering the pain-killing medication during childbirth, would be risky if the woman had a tattoo. And how many young women now have tattoos in the small of their back? They speculated that complications like inflammation or nerve damage may arise if the needle pulled a bit of dyed skin along with it and deposited that dyed skin into the nerve-rich region outside the spinal column. Why there is not consensus on the study, uh, what uh, a more recent article from the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology found uh, with one in four Americans age 18 to 50 tattooed and 20% of women having tattoos on their lower back that anesthesiologists, particularly those who specialize in obstetrical anesthesia, um, are a little concerned these days for a number of reasons. For example, tattoos can be risky, and uh, infection and disease um, is certainly not foreign. The fact that you may go to a reputable person for a tattoo, but if they are dipping uh, from the same bottle of ink for multiple tattoos you may be transmitting a condition like, um, like hepatitis. That there have been scattered reports of tattooed patients getting burned during MRI procedures because tattoo inks 
contain metals and these could react during an MRI. So, <laughs> a little more cause for concern why we would not want to rush in and have our bodies tattooed uh, include the use of uh, epidurals. And, of course, um, some of these epidural injections are often given uh, when patients have chronic back pain. Interesting information. What's well, a new study that causes yet another bit of concern about the therapies that we typically use for cancer in this country. Medical University of South Carolina uh, now believes that some of the side effects of treatment using radiation and chemotherapy for head and neck cancer um, really diminishes or eliminates their ability to drive an automobile safely. That both re- uh, reduced head and neck mobility, cognitive impairment. We know that for people who have had chemotherapy, particularly chemotherapy for for brain tumors, particularly susceptible to problems with with their, their their brain functioning, pain and psychological distress, all of the side effects that impair driving. So published in the current uh, archives of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, comparing uh, people um, who had uh, chemotherapy and radiation for head and neck cancer versus those who did not, taking a look at the total number of collisions, there is a conclusion that cancer care might impact your ability to drive safely. Well, it's now being reported by today's National Institute of Health Library of Medicine as uncharted territory. Dr. Martha Richardson, uh, writing in the latest issue of the Harvard Women's Health Watch publication, says the continuous use of birth control pills, those seasonal pills that you see widely being touted in offices of gynecologists and obstetricians around the country, um, may be risky. There are pros and cons to taking these medications, including the new contraceptive uh, uh, liberal, uh, to completely eliminate monthly menstrual cycles. That, as Dr. Richardson points out, there is no long-term safety data on the use of these contraceptives to completely eliminate a woman's menstrual cycle. So I guess it, it comes down to, do you want to be the experiment for the, the premise of eliminating um, some of the, the monthly discomfort that often comes with having a menstrual cycle? You know, that there, is, <laughs> there are you know, biological, anatomical, physiological reasons why we, we have these cycles of nature. Well, certainly germane to our conversation today with Dr. Joel Kaufman, the author of Malignant Medical Myths, the front page of today's Wall Street Journal, talking about as costs rise, new medicines face pushback. They're talking about, uh, for example, there's a colon cancer drug out there called uh, Avastin, $8,000 a dose. (laughs) And many companies are saying, I'm not going to pay for that. And with the revelation that it's, quote, uh, according to uh, a Duke University uh, medical researcher, what's happening is 
totally arbitrary, 100% correlated to when the prices went up, that manufacturers are investing a lot of money in these biotech drugs. They want to, to reap the profit associated with their investment, but you know, when is a drug that costs $300,000 a year for the rest of the patient's life worketh? We're talking about the drug myozyme that replaces an enzyme deficiency that causes muscle degeneration. So it begs the question, what price point should we draw the line? Should we look at what other countries do, and that is price controls that insurers limit coverage to FDA-approved uses with the $300,000 a year drug for the rest of your life denied. Very interesting article, thanks to uh, journalist Jane Brody in today's New York Times uh, science section. The poisonous cocktail of multiple drugs. We now know that the average person over the age of 60 in this country consumes, fills 33 different prescriptions in one year. And what Jane Brody talks about is a 78-year-old woman who was found unconscious on the floor of her apartment. She was taking low pressure for high blood pressure, digitalis to control her heart's rhythm, Coumadin to help prevent uh, a stroke, Durosamide, a diuretic to help lower her blood pressure, Lipitor to lower her cholesterol, Baby Aspirin to reduce uh, the risk of clots, Celebrex for pain, Paxil for depression, Valium to help her sleep, uh, Levofloxacin, uh, an antibiotic for her cough, Ibuprofen for body aches, and cough medicine. And what she was was bleeding from a stomach ulcer from the combination of drugs that irritate the stomach the combination of Celebrex, ibuprofen, aspirin, and Coumadin, along with the antibiotic, were thinning her blood to the point of bleeding from her gastrointestinal lining. It points out the problems with polypharmacy. No doctor can tell you what these multiple drugs mean because the science is only there when a a patient is prescribed one drug at a time. And again, just like obliterating women's menstrual cycles with the use of some of these new oral contraceptives, we are the experiment. You make the decision if you want to be that experiment when it comes to your health. We're going to return to talk with a noted uh, chemist, a brilliant scientist, an important book. Required reading for each and every one of us, Malignant Medical Myths. Dr. Joel Kaufman joining us today on Healthy Talk Radio. He comes highly recommended to us, and given the fact that the Sunday New York Times Magazine and uh, the Sunday LA Times both had major articles about is what we tend to believe generally in medicine, you know, the the four decades of hormone replacement therapy, does it stand up to scientific scrutiny? Well, he tells us his own personal story, but there is a larger message here. His book required reading for all of us as educated healthcare consumers. The book entitled Malignant Medical Myths. We'll tell you about where to get it with the author, who is a noted uh, chemist, a Ph.D. in organic uh, chemistry, a a brilliant scientist, uh, uh, was a professor of uh, chemistry, uh, uh, joining the USP. He's Dr. Joel Kaufman, who joins us today. Dr. Kaufman, hello and welcome. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. 
this book, well-researched, well-documented, a lot of work. What, what was the need behind it? Um, you know, you had your own personal epiphany that you would share with us in Malignant Medical Myths. Why go to the trouble to, to document, to, to send this message to each and every one of us as healthcare consumers in this country, Dr. Kaufman? Because there are so many common presentations of medical claims, drug claims, test claims that are not really based on um, fact. Well, they're based on facts, but those facts are altered, so the result is not always a benefit for us consumers or patients. There was just so much of it. The inspiration for it was another book called The Cholesterol Myths, which came out in 2000. And I have that myth and ten others in my book. And one of the, the ones that there are many of which we'll discuss, and of course many more that people can, can read in Malignant Medical Myths, actually made a recent list of the Center for Disease Control's all-time public health breakthroughs of the last 50 years. Address, uh, if you would, because people uh, will direct people to read more Malignant Medical Myths, the myth that fluoride in our water are preventing our teeth from getting cavities, Dr. Kaufman. The original effort of fluoridating water seems to have been an effort to get rid of hazardous waste uh, cheaply and also to convince people that the fluorinated byproducts and side solvents from the Manhattan Project were not terribly toxic after all. So that seems to have been the beginning of it, and the early studies did not hold up on longer examination. One of the earliest pairs of cities that were done were Newburgh, New York, and I think Kingston, New York. One fluoridated, one not, in uh, the 1940s. And the initial reports from those who knew what they had to report were favorable to fluoridation for reducing the number of cavities. Later reports showed that there were actually more cavities or other tooth problems in the fluoridated community than in the non-fluoridated community. So later work published in 1990, a nationwide study, showed that the gain in five-year-olds for baby teeth is one half tooth less decay, which is a quarter of a tooth and not statistically significant in six-year-olds, and then no difference all the way up to 18-year-olds. And so a study that was very large and carefully done by someone not sponsored by one of the fluoride waste producers showed that there was little to no benefit. But as is done with so many drugs, blood pressure drugs, cholesterol drugs, most drugs, the main effect was not so effective, but what was ignored were the side effects. The side effects were n never immediate. And so there were few long-term studies sponsored by the proponents of fluoridation. Others finally did them and discovered that there's an overall increase in cancers, mostly gastrointestinal 
cancers of 10%, that there is hypothyroidism, which can lead to lethargy and weight gain. There are more bone fractures in boys with fluoridated water. That's just a few. So you mentioned um, you know, uh, sponsored interest, and we now see an unfolding message on the front page of major newspapers and uh, from inside sources um, like former editors of the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, Harvard, Tufts, Yale University professors that, that vested interests uh, have changed medical research, education, uh, funding, publication, how doctors are taught, and you you provide some just sobering uh, statistics in your book, Malignant Medical Myths, Dr. Kaufman. Um, a, a worldwide vice president of genetics at GlaxoSmithKline talking about expensive drugs and the efficacy of drugs because many of us think um, if drugs are on the market, if they're approved, they have a, a certain degree of efficacy. And uh, with our you know, bill for prescription drugs at an all-time high, you know, many of us think that model that, that you know, cost equals quality equals some sort of, of efficacy assurance. Tell us a little bit more about what you uh, discovered and put in your book, please. Well, for one thing, it used to be that drug trials could be run by drug companies, and if they did not give a positive result, they were not published. I think this has changed recently, but we can't be sure. It's supposed to have changed. So in the case of Zoloft and Prozac, to name two, at least five, six, seven studies were done before the drug maker found a positive result in one of the studies, and that was the study submitted to the FDA to get drug approval. So that claimed effect may, in actuality, be uh, lower than what has actually been claimed. If there is a claimed 30% reduction of this or that, because of one trial that seemed to have shown it in a very specifically selected subject group, in the overall population, uh, the effectiveness is guaranteed to be less, sometimes a lot less. But it also speaks to, to drugs to, that address symptoms, and you talk about this specifically in, in malignant medical myths, Dr. Kaufman. Um, you know, we, we now medicalize childbirth. We medicalize age. If, if most of us would have thought, you know, even several decades ago that there would, we would spend nine billion dollars a year on a single medication just to follow cholesterol numbers, <laughs> I think most of us with, with a science background would have never thought that the marketing would have worked to that extent. Your insight, please. Well, I don't have the marketing and advertising background, so I'm not sure I can tell you exactly what was done, but some of the tricks, of course, rather than burying negative studies, some of the tricks are to report the results in terms of a surrogate endpoint, what you just named, some indirect measurement that's easy to do, usually cheap to do, like on blood. And then the main message from the drug company that makes the drug is all you need to know is that your cholesterol should be lower than whatever it is. 
Now, this is what Ufa Ravenskov, MD, PhD, in his book showed, and I show in different ways of mine, is not true. There was never any evidence for this. It's not even a case where there was thought to be good evidence, and it seems less good with time. The fact of the matter is, Ravenskov could not find in primary medical journals any evidence that lowering cholesterol extended lifespan, and that's true to this day. Dr. Coffin, we don't want to miss a minute. Hold that thought, if you would, please. He joins us today to talk about a very important book, Malignant Medical Mess. You're invited to join us, 800-307-3002. You're listening to Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray, where Dr. Joe Kaufman joins us today. He's a noted uh, scientist, chemist, author of Malignant Medical Miss, Malignant Medical Miss, who joins us today. Uh, the subtitle of the book being Why Medical Treatment Causes 200,000 Deaths in the U.S. Each Year, and more importantly, How to Protect Yourself. You're invited to join us at 800-307-3002. The book, Dr. Kaufman, published by Infinity Publishing. Where's the best place for people listening to us to get their own copy of the book? Either buybooksontheweb.com or Amazon. Okay, so buybooksontheweb.com will help them. Yes. We were talking about um, uh, the, the, the fallacy of following the, the numbers, um, and we've seen any number of uh, uh, you know redefinitions of uh, what's normal for blood sugar, blood pressure, uh, blood cholesterol number. Um, but you know, to speak of what is one of the most often repeated adages for all of us um, as healthcare consumers is the catch up in time mentality. The fact that we have believed for many years that mass screening, uh, mammograms for breast cancer screening, was going to help women live longer and live better. Talk with us about myth number nine, annual mammograms and follow-up treatments prolong life, Dr. Kaufman. Well, it's hard to do this really briefly. All I can say is that evidence from groups considered to be the most reliable, such as the Cochrane Group based in London and Copenhagen, mm -hmm. have looked at studies as carefully as they can, and they find no difference in lifespan for women who get annual mammograms starting at any age versus those who do not. It's just not happening. And another, there's another angle to this. The usual claim that if you have annual mammograms, you are less likely to die of breast cancer. That is found in giant books that gynecologists use and 2,000-page tomes on cardiology. And they both say that uh, less likely on cancer, sorry. They both say you are, what, 20% less likely to die of breast cancer if you have annual mammograms. What they do not say is that is a single cause of death. Treatment of breast cancer tends to increase heart attacks, and the overall result is no additional lifespan. And so annual mammograms are not a good idea. So we have seen uh, you know, recent revelations in the popular media um, about 
uh, false positives, false negatives, be it mammograms or, or PSAs or, or any of the mass screening uh, for cancer. We've seen them, um, you know, come into question, you know, even the reading of some of these tests like mammograms. So when it comes to this catch it in time mentality, you know, where does this leave us? Uh, you know, wh- what are your personal thoughts uh, about this mentality as a, as a healthcare consumer yourself, Dr. Kaufman? Could you rephrase that question? Sure, sure. I'm wondering, you know, given uh, your research behind malignant uh, medical myths relating to that catch-it-in-time mentality, you know, where does this leave us with the, you know, the continuing medical adage that somehow we are are good patients for submitting to these these mass screenings uh, to potentially catch cancer in time, Dr. Kaufman? The evidence for this should be read in my book or elsewhere. And there really are too many tests that are of no benefit. And I'm sorry to say that cholesterol and LDL cholesterol testing are among them. They're really of no benefit since there's no benefit to lower those levels. Getting back to breast cancer, part of the problem, which I think you were getting at, is that there are so many false positives. Right, right. Really false positives. Uh, many of the supposed positives are DCIS, which by definition is not malignant and has not spread. That's in its name. And the trouble is there are so many biopsies. It's so scary to be told that you have a positive. Then you have a biopsy, and the results of that may not be conclusive, and then you need some other kind of test. And it's so scary that the uh, trauma really wrecks quality of life from that first positive onward. So just recently, uh, just in the last two weeks, the American College of Chest Surgeons came out and said, even for those who are heavy smokers, you know, this routine screening for lung cancer just, just just is not borne out, but but you wonder aloud. At least I do, Doctor Kaufman. You know how long will that you know translate to actually effectively make a change in clinical practice in this country? I don't know because these tests are very profitable yeah. for the purveyors of them, those who carry them out, and those who make the devices to do the test. It is profitable. Well, one of the most uh, widely repeated adages uh, for us as healthcare consumers is the fact that an aspirin a day <laughs> will help keep uh, you know the, the doctor way, help keep our heart healthy. So that's one of the the myths you research for malignant medical myths. Tell us more, Dr. Kaufman. The original big press release in the United States around 1989 was from the Physicians Health Group study on 17,000, maybe more to start with, male physicians who started out between the ages of 20 and 60, all male, like every other early test on aspirin. And the results were said to be a 50% drop in heart attacks and the rate of heart attacks. Now, that's a relative risk. Almost everything you see on TV ads and other ads are relative risks, a 30% drop of this, a 50% increase in that. These are all relative risks, and they tell you nothing without the absolute risk. For instance, if you were to take an aspirin to drop your cause 
of dying by 50% in one year. No one has claimed that. Mm-hmm. What if you had two chances in a million of dying in that year without the aspirin and one chance in a million of dying in that year with the aspirin, not even counting the bad side effects of aspirin? Why bother? Your chances for an improvement are only one in a million, and for many drugs that are around, it's not much better than that. So that's the first problem. The second problem is the aspirin was recommended for women, even though it was not tested in women until the 1990s. And when it was, it turned out that in any typical dose of aspirin, it increased the overall death rate in women. Now, getting back to those heart attacks in men, almost all of the heart attacks that were reduced were non-fatal ones but there were additional internal bleedings and hemorrhagic strokes so that the overall death rate was not significantly different. So the result of all that was there's no point in taking aspirin for the long term. For the short term, after a heart attack, it's beneficial for five weeks, and then one should taper off or stop. But it also raises um, uh, an important point um, that that's throughout uh, malignant medical myths, and that is that decision-making process uh, to us as healthcare consumers um, you know, includes that risk-to-benefit ratio. Um, help us to understand that term, uh, because it, it's at the bedrock of of examining many of these malignant medical myths, Dr. Kaufman. Well, many of the benefits are given and advertised, and the uh, bad side effects are minimized. And there is no numerical ratio, like you would like to have a um, benefit-to-risk, that way ratio of, of 10 benefit for one risk or even better. But there's never a number for this. So... The uh, FDA does insist that drug ads and other things, ads on TV, have the risks given. Mm -hmm. But the risks given are based on trials. And I learned recently that two of the tricks in trials are this. There is a placebo group, sugar pill group, that's supposed to be identical in age, sex, weight, and everything else to the intervention group that actually gets the drug or test. And those who respond in the uh, run-in period before the actual trial begins, that's another one they don't tell you about. There's usually a run-in period. Those who respond very well to placebo, abnormally well to placebo, are eliminated. And those who respond abnormally badly to the drug or complain about side effects in the drug group are eliminated. And so right off the bat, this is one of the reasons that the best trials come out best. The trial results sponsored by the drug company simply can't be trusted. And it's very difficult for someone who didn't spend years trying to understand medical journals to dig into the body of a medical journal to find what the actual numbers were in a trial. All that you see that appears in a press release is what's in the abstract, and the abstracts cleverly leave out, at least they did in the past, all the bad stuff. 
And you mentioned statistics, and uh, there's been at least two studies recently in the medical literature to, to indicate that you know most physicians, much less us out here <laughs> in in the world of healthcare consumers, Dr. Kaufman, you know, ill prepared in terms of statistics to be able to even understand you know these relative risk when these when these studies appear. Well, that at least is very well explained in at least half the chapters in Malignant Medical Myth. And it's worth reading just so they get used to the idea of interpreting relative risk for what it is and is not. Right. So when it comes to um, you know all the all of these adages, um, you know all of these recommendations, you know I'm I'm reminded you know recently of the big political battle about um, you know health insurance for children, and it and it occurred to me, Dr. Kaufman, you know after reading malignant medical myths and after considering this recent political battle, you know. You speak to the medicalization. You know, when do we consider children to be healthier for having health insurance? When do we consider the American population to be healthier for, you know, following their blood cholesterol, their blood sugar, their blood pressure, the medicalization of age and childbirth, and of which you speak of in malignant medical myths? You know, we don't get the big picture, uh, you know, for, for, for the trees we're following, Dr. Kaufman. Well, of all the tests in children, and by the way, drugs are prescribed for children even when they have never been tested in children, possibly because the drug company would not get permission to do such a trial. But drugs tested on people who are 20 to 60 years old are then recommended for the elderly and for children, and the effects really are different. If nothing else, the uh, optimum doses for 20 to 60 year olds will almost certainly be too high for the elderly or children so that's first of all the one thing that might be worthwhile because dealing with it is so easy in children in particular before their habits are too formed is doing a fasting blood glucose to see whether they are Mm pre-diabetic or even diabetic And the reason this is so good is that a change of diet to low carb, and that means low starch as well as low sugar, is very effective in syndrome X, type 2 diabetes, and as part of a program even for type 1. This this is for sure, although it seems, as is shown in malignant medical myth, Every single government organization in the U.S. and Canada says otherwise. They have no evidence. The evidence is out there that eating too much carb is what causes adult-onset diabetes, which has been getting down into uh, early teenagers. And a low-carb diet will put a stop to it at once. I should say low carb, high fat. Right, right. But the, of course, you know, the, the, you know, then comes the conversation. Um, you know, you know, the quality of the carbohydrate. Uh, you know, obviously, our diets have been forever changed in terms of the type of fat. Um, you know, the processing of carbohydrates as well, Dr. Kaufman. Well, it doesn't matter. A digestible carb of any sort will do about as much damage if you digest it your body is making it into glucose 
and that is the problematic, most problematic sugar. Mm -hmm. Although large doses of fructose are no bargain either. And so sugary fruit is not a health food for those who are carb-sensitive or diabetic. Hard to believe, but it's true. Whereas non-sugary fruit, such as cherries or berries, is good for almost anybody, but very sweet fruit is not. Good point. Good point. Back with more of Dr. Joel Kaufman joining us today. Malignant Medical Myths. Buy books on the web.com. Right here on Healthy Talk Radio, I'm Deborah Ray. Cutting edge information on alternative medicines, nutrition, and your health. Healthy Talk Radio with Deborah Ray. An honor to have Dr. Joel Kaufman join us today. He is the author of Malignant Medical Myths, uh, a noted uh, chemist, uh, scientist. He joins us today to talk about the, the myths discussed in his book. And as we mentioned, you can get it through the publisher online at buybooksontheweb.com. Buybooksontheweb.com. If uh, for whatever reason you don't have access uh, to, to that site, Amazon carries it as well. And you know, speaking to to the entire issue of medicalization, um, and you know, redefining normals, um, one of the the myths discussed in the book, uh, Dr. Kaufman refers to uh, taking drugs for high blood pressure. And I've recently seen, you know, the redefinition that maybe one in two Americans has high blood pressure, and maybe it's a good reason for for all diabetics to be screened for high blood pressure. Address this, if you would, please. Yes. Blood pressure goes up naturally with age. It is not supposed to stop at age 20 at 120 over 80. It goes up naturally with age, and unless it gets to really alarming heights like 200 over 100, there will be little or no benefit from taking blood pressure drugs. So this is very well described in myth number four. You have to see all the evidence for it. But... Like bringing cholesterol down, which has no overall beneficial effect, bringing a moderate blood pressure down. Let's say you have 160 over 90 and it's brought down with a blood pressure drug. Yes, it's easy to measure. It's down. But will you live longer? The actual evidence says, no, you won't. And you will have side effects, including dizziness on getting up from a seated or lying down position, which could lead to a broken hip if you're old enough. So that's that's how it goes. So we, we look at this, you know, this polypharmacy. The fact that the average person over the age of sixty in this country fills thirty-three different prescriptions in one year—it's mind-boggling, Doctor Kaufman. Well, I thought it was uh, for sixty-five-year-olds seven different drugs on a daily basis, and the usual routine is one drug is given for something. And that creates a side effect that leads to the second drug, and that leads to a side effect that leads to a third drug, and so on. So that five or six of the seven drugs are only trying to compensate for the side effects of the first and all producing side effects of their own. Well, there is much more in the book. We'd love to have you come back again. Great book. Thank you very much. Please come again. You're welcome, and I hope to. Dr. Joel Kaufman joining us today. He is the author of Malignant 
medical myths must read for each and every one of us who hope to become better educated healthcare consumers. Again, the website, buybooksontheweb.com or Amazon. Thanks to have each and every one of you join us. I'm Deborah Ray reminding you, live long, stay healthy.